The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And to listen to tonight's full interview, just go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. You will receive your login immediately. Give yourself the gift of truth. And I have an announcement I would like to introduce The Lounge, a place where truth seekers around the world can meet, listen to Veritas streaming 24-7, and discuss everything that matters in your pursuit of knowledge. Absolutely free and available to all serious truth seekers. That's all I want. That's the only requirement. If you are a truth seeker, you are welcome. Come and enjoy V Lounge. Now open. Just go to our website. There's going to be a big red v on the right side and we'll see you there and the beautiful thing about this is that the system plays every single program we've done from the beginning and it's all randomized so i don't even know what comes next so it's good to be surprised but uh, it all plays at the same time so anybody around the world could be listening to the same material being played so you can comment and discuss what you're listening to hopefully this will be helpful to many people and uh, especially for those of you who are still considering becoming a very test member, this is a great sample for you. I hope you enjoy it. The Lounge, now open. It was the most deadly and destructive war in human history. Millions were killed. Billions in property was destroyed. Ancient cultures were reduced to rubble. World War II was truly man's greatest cataclysm. Thousands of books, movies, and documentary films have been devoted to the war. There has never been such a terrible retelling of the story. However, tonight, you will be placed at the scene, in the moment. Get ready to revise the his story, written by the victors. We should take one side, and one side only, and that is the side of truth. Tonight's special guest is Thomas Goodrich, right now on Veritas. Race in Kansas and Missouri, as Michael Thomas Goodrich. Before he began writing books, he painted watercolors for a meager existence in New England. He's a graduate of Washburn University. Thomas loves pure prairie and standing on historic ground when there is no one else around. In addition to his books on the American Civil War, the Indian Wars, the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, and World War II, Thomas enjoys observing all things great and small 
and learning how they get along. Before he, ma- before he majored in history, he majored in psychology. His latest book is titled Hellstorm, The Death of Nazi Germany, 1944 to 1947. And directly from Punta Gorda, Florida, I would like to welcome Thomas Goodrich. Hello, Thomas, and welcome to Veritas. Well, thank you so much, Mel, for having me, and thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. I, I think I'll have to save that. It's my pleasure. May I call you Tom? <laughs> yes, you may. Tom, this is a, what a book, what a book. And as I was telling you offline, we've been so programmed for decades during the war, before the war, after the war, to believe everything that the media tells us, the Ministry of Propaganda. But we think of people like Bernard Baruch. We think of people like the father of the propaganda machine, Edward Bernays. All those things together created one big story. And tonight, I want to put things in perspective. I don't want to take any sides. I want to take one side only, and that's a side of truth. Before, how did you get into all of this? How did you start revising the history that we were told? Well, Mel, that's an interesting question. Uh, probably you can tell by my voice that my carbon dating is fairly accurate for <laughs> World War II. I was not born during World War II, but shortly after. So therefore, I was raised in the environment of World War II. I had two fathers, actually, one a biological father and one a uh, adoptive father, both of whom fought in World War II, one in the Pacific and one uh, in the European theater of operations. And so uh, that and a string, uh, almost an unending string of old war movie with John Wayne leading the charge. Uh, I grew up in that element. And uh, quite honestly, I was a child of World War II. And I, I grew up believing the good war scenario. The greatest generation uh, fought that war. I, was, I believed in Eisenhower. I believed in uh, everything they did over there because after all, that's all I knew. It was on TV, uh, radio, all the movies. And uh, so what is a child going to do? Certainly they're not going to ask any really uh, cogent questions uh, at 9, 10, or 11. So they believe what they hear and see. And they grow up believing that. Well, someday a child does grow up. They become an adult and they start snooping around. If they have a curiosity gene, they will explore certain, certain areas of history. Uh, that may not sound exactly right. How can any how can any people, how can any side be so perfect? Such a paragon as the Allied side was presented as. Uh, the greatest generation. My God, what a, what a term that is. The greatest generation. There's been a lot of generations of us, but that was the greatest. Uh, the good war. Um, sorry, but I've done a lot of research in war, and there has never been a good war. They're all bad. Where do these terms come from? And so that picked my interest. But more than anything else, quite honestly, Mel, I think I was born with a history gene. I think some of us have it. Some of us don't. I had it. And so uh, as after I graduated from college with a degree in history, uh, everyone assumed that I was going to teach history. Because other than that, other than that or selling insurance, that's about the only uh, avenues open to a history major. But I decided that I wanted to write. I was uh, smitten by uh, various good history writers at the time. And I just wanted to emulate these people, so to speak. So I went to work and I got a few books published early on on the American Civil War. And um, 
I enjoyed writing, and people seemed to enjoy what I wrote. So I continued. I tried to pick subject matters that were not being covered or were being covered up, even at that time during the American Civil War. Uh, of course, the South has come down to us as the uh, uh, devil incarnate. The Confederacy lost that war, of course. And uh, there is very little, even to this very day, that's said good about the Confederacy, the South, the rebels. And so I tried to balance out the scales of history and try to present the other side without being biased. And I should say this right now, before I go any further, that whatever I may say on this program, that's me personally speaking. What I write in history books is another matter. I pride myself in objectivity. I don't think a history book is any place to parade your bias. Although you may have plenty of it, this is not the place. This is the place for you to set the buffet table with the facts and allow the reader to come and partake. Take what they want from this table. Take By the way, that, that's the analogy that I always use, the buffet table. There you go. Uh, yeah, it's beautiful minds think like alike, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, and so uh, with that said, taking it up a notch. Every book I did, I came to the Indian Wars, and it, at the time, it was the most controversial book I had done, because unlike the movies we were uh, being subjected to, Little Big Man and uh, Dances with Wolves and uh, Soldier Blue, b movies that uh, were continually vilifying and denigrating the white people that were involved in these uh, movies, um, I, I took another approach. I took a, an approach, as I just mentioned, the buffet table approach. Let people come and take what they want. In the words of themselves, the people were doing the talking, not only the victims, but the victimizers, people, uh, the Indians, the soldiers, the wives, the, uh, the women who were raped, who were uh, captured by the Indians and raped. In fact, I have a chapter in there, uh, chapter eight, it's called A Fate Worse Than Death, and that may sound very melodramatic and Victorian and out of, out of uh, date, but let me assure you that it was a fate worse than death. It was not the common Harlequin romance uh, portrayal of a woman captured and falling in love with a rapist. Uh, it wasn't about a beautiful Western sunsets uh, and never, ever wanting to leave the tribe that she was uh, captured by. It was, uh, it was the ab absolute opposite of the 13 or 14 women I um, studied. Not a one of them wanted to stay with their red rapists. They were more than happy to escape. In fact, most women wanted to kill the Indians who had raped them. Uh, that's another story all itself. But let me say this, that uh, I found so much in there that was, well, I, I just have to throw this one anecdote in right now to show you what I mean about uh, covering things that have been covered up, so to speak. We all grew up, at least in America. I know you're from Puerto Rico originally, but in America, we all grew up as kids with this mantra. The American Indian, when he killed a buffalo, he used every part of that beast possible. Everything from the horns to the hooves. The, the, the hide was for, for teepees and for coats. Uh, the um, horns were for ut eating utensils. Uh, the guts were for something else. I don't know what. But everything was used. And now that's what we grew up with, and uh, the, that was carved in stone. Well, guess what? When I did the research for this book, I found out that the American Indian could be just as wasteful as any white man ever born. When there was plenty of buffalo in the springtime, the Indian uh, – well, for instance, there are drops in the west where Indians would drive buffalo over cliffs. And as the buffalo lay down there helpless, their legs broken, quivering – uh, the Indians would go through just like a, a 
19th century supermarket picking out the choice meats. Uh, the tongue was a de- delicacy, as the hump was, and leave the rest to rot. Um, in the wintertime, yes, indeed. When there were very few animals, very few buffalo, the Indian uh, used every part of that animal. But guess what? So did the American settler. When there were plenty of buffaloes, yes, they, they, they shot them. They uh, left them to rot. So did the Indians. When they got the rifles, they left them to rot. Um, and when there was wintertime, of course, they used them all. Uh, that's, that right there should be enough to tell anyone that there are plenty of, uh, plenty of accounts out there that still need questioning. Uh, I think it was you, Mel, that said something about um, question the answer. Uh, ask questions and then question, question the answers. The answer. yes, yes, that's that's beautiful. I, uh, obviously, I couldn't put it that well. I uh, had to copy from you, but that's the truth. And so, which leads us to World War II. Um, by far, it's the uh, most controversial book I've ever done because I'm looking squarely at the war as a neutral observer, so to speak. Now, uh, that said, this book is not about what the Germans did to the world. Their libraries are full of such books. Uh, TV, movies, that's all they talk about is the evil Germans and what they did to the world uh, or to Europeans or whatever. This book is the opposite. It's the first book ever to talk about what the world did to the Germans. And quite honestly, it's it's the darkest and best kept secret in world history. Never in history have so many people been raped. Never in history have so many people been tortured. Never in history have so many people been murdered. And Mel, never in history have so many people not known about it. So few known, so few people known about it. Um, and that's the reason for the book uh, is to show that there was another side, the loser's side to World War II. Um, and I, um, unfortunately, let me say this, there have been many, many good books written about various components, various aspects of what I call the darkest and best kept, uh, secret in world history. I might also add the greatest crime committed in history. Uh, there have been some wonderful, well-written books, but no one until I, I came along with my book, Hellstorm, have put them, put them all together into one package, one book about the various crimes that were committed in our name by by the greatest generation, the so-called good war. Um, it's, it's a book, again, like my other books. It's first-person, you-are-there approach. It's in the words of the people themselves. They may kill me, that is, reviewers or people who hate me. They can kill me, the, the, the messenger. But it's very difficult to kill the message when it's in the words of the people themselves. And that's what this book is about. It's... Um, it's not only in the words of the victims, mostly German women, men, women, and children, but it's also in the words of the victimizers and what they thought about it at the time and what they thought about it later. Some, bless their hearts, they had a conscience, and they felt terrible about what they had seen, and sometimes even worse, they felt terrible about what they had done. But the book, uh, for instance, Allied Bombing. Uh, the Allies, the British, the Americans, they called it by different terms. They called it saturation bombing, or they might call it carpet bombing uh, or area bombing. But the people who suffered from the bombing, the women and children of German cities, called it by another and more accurate name. They called it terror bombing because by 1944, that's what it was, is terror, deliberate attempt to kill every man, woman, and child in every German city. It's, it's as simple as I can put it. Uh, I should tell you that the title of the book is Hellstorm, and the subtitle is 
the death of Nazi Germany, 1944-1947. So I'm talking about 1944 to 1945, which was the last year of the war, and then the immediate post-war years. I won't call them years of peace because it was not. It was war by other means, 1946-47. So 1944 to 1947. By 1944, there were no more targets left in Germany. The Allied um, Air Forces, uh, the RAF and the American Eighth Air Force, had total command of the sky. They had blown everything to atoms in Germany by 1944. And so what do you do with uh, the, the largest air, air forces on Earth? You don't just simply set them aside, put them in hangars and mothball them. No, you keep using them. And so that's where the terror bombing comes in. Winston Churchill, Churchill um, is the orchestrator of this. He sent his man to work, a guy named uh, Arthur Harris, Arthur Bomber Harris, to basically uh, just saturate Germany with bombs. The, the rubble down below, it could be blasted to uh, splinters, and that's what happened. Let me give you an example of what I mean by terror bombing. And this is a pattern that developed from this time forward all the way to the end of the war. Hamburg, Hamburg, Germany, a city of one million people in northern Germany, a beautiful city, had hardly been touched in the first few years of war because uh, the Germans surmised that it was because Churchill had an aunt living there or that it was such a beautiful city and very English in its, uh, in its uh, outlook that nobody in England wanted to destroy it. Well, they found out differently on a night, uh, summer night in 1943, when 1,000 planes flew into over uh, Hamburg and uh, let loose ton upon ton of uh, high-explosive bombs and blockbuster bombs, some of them two- and four-ton blockbuster bombs that would efface entire city blocks. Uh, when this raid was over, after about a half an hour, there was nothing left of Hamburg. It had been blown to splinters, atoms. And as the people, several hours later, are crawling from their, uh, the ones who survived it, is are crawling from their cellars and air raid shelters. And as the ambulances from beyond Hamburg and as the rescue workers are coming into the city to try to rescue the people that survived this raid, just then, another raid occurred, and that was the Americans coming in this time with uh, firebombs, phosphorus firebombs, to drop, deliberately drop on this city and ignite uh, the splinters into a, a, a firestorm. That's what it's called, a firestorm. Pardon me for that jet. There's a <laughs> jet flying right over the rooftop, it sounds like here. I don't know if you can hear that. Yeah, sure. But, no um, problem. Appropriately, a plane flying over here, getting ready to bomb me. But... Um, the um, fire bombs, the, the fire sticks, phosphorus were dropped in their tens of thousands. They were small, but once they hit, they ignited and they let loose the napalm gelatin type of stuff, which um, started these fires very quickly. Within minutes, the splinters that had been blown apart by the previous raid uh, caught fire. Civilian they, population, right? Yes, yes. We're not talking about soldiers. We're talking about mostly old men, women and children. The, the young men are gone fighting at wars uh, in the fronts. And so we're talking about a helpless civilian population that has almost nothing to do with the war. But again, we're back to terror bombing. And that's the point of this terror bombing is to kill as many women and children as possible. Uh, it's a very sadistic, a very deliberate policy. Uh, had, had the Allies lost, of course, they would have been the first on the dockets by a world court for this huge world crime. But by the way, the uh, fires would spread so rapidly from the second bombing, the terror, uh, the fire bombing, that it created a fury. It created a vortex of fire, a tornado of flame. The winds were of hurricane strength. Uh, 
the the temperature within the middle of Hamburg and every other town after this was somewhere around 1,500 to 2,000 degrees. Heat like that has a terrific way of pulling in outside air to feed itself. Hurricane force wind. Thank you for listening. To unlock the full two-hour interview, including video formats, downloads, transcripts, exclusive articles, and more, subscribe to Veritas Plus now. Gain access to our entire archive dating back to 2008. Just click subscribe at veritasradio.com. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. Subscribe now. To listen to the rest and all of our exclusive material, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or join the Veritas Plus family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy. Get a 15-day free trial today with no credit card required. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button on our website at veritasradio.com. Now, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it because you don't want to believe. You want to know. What are you waiting for? Subscribe now at veritasradio.com.